0: Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at brain biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. While accurate data is hard to come by, some sources claim that up to 90% of startups fail. There can be many reasons for this, including but, of course, not limited to the product or service not meeting market needs, the business model being flawed, or early-stage funding not materializing. One potential issue not often discussed is the impact of employee commitment and the extent to which those working for startups are prepared to put in the discretionary effort sometimes needed to get the startup over those critical early stage challenges, something which is apparently experienced to a much greater extent by female founders when compared to their male peers. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined on the Brain for Business podcast by Professor Olenka Katzperchik. Olenka Katsperczyk is a Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. She received her PhD from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, and prior to joining London Business School, Olenka held a faculty position at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Olenka's research focuses on entrepreneurship and examines why individuals sometimes give up their jobs and become entrepreneurs, and also how people's movements into entrepreneurship affect social inequality, workplace segregation, and income distribution. Olenka, welcome to Brain for Business.
1: Thank you very much for having me here.
0: So tell me, I guess as a a basic sort of level, what percentage of new startups are founded by women?
1: All right. So this is actually a surprisingly difficult question to answer because it's challenging to pin down one specific number. The percentage of startups that are founded by women usually varies by region, it varies by country, it also varies by industry, but one thing that we do know, and we do know it for, for certain, is that it tends to actually be systematically lower uh, relative to uh, male started um, businesses. And so if you look, let's say, at specific reports and studies, um, you see estimates that range from 20% to 25% globally. And so so among all the ventures founded, women um, would would account for 20% of those businesses. Uh, And so actually, let me just tell you about one study that we conducted in two thousand nineteen. We looked at all businesses in California and Massachusetts in the United States. So these are the regions where you'd see a lot of venture capital activity. And so we looked at it over quite a long period of time between 1995 and 2011. And we looked at any type of business that you can imagine. So corporations, limited liability companies, uh, partnerships, general partnerships, all of them for profit. So we constructed the sample of 2 million startups in those states. And so there as well, we found that only 22% of all startups founded in that period were founded by women. Now, 22% might seem small, Mm. But but it's actually the overall rate, and it gets much worse. It gets much worse when we look at specific types of ventures. And in particular, let's talk a little bit about what we call high-growth ventures. So, so these are ventures that get VC funding, ventures that actually will have eventually an IPO... Um, they will go IPO or they'll have uh, equity sales. And so these are those, those ventures that often create jobs, these ventures that we want to promote in the economy. And so unfortunately, what we found was that, well, the numbers were were actually much smaller. They, were, they look much worse for women among those ventures. And so, so only 10% of uh, venture-backed firms are female-founded, And the numbers are even smaller for ventures that were sold or had an IPO. There we found 7%, right? Mm. So, So the numbers start to dwindle as you move down the stages of the entrepreneurial process. And so very, very few women are represented among those high growth ventures. So essentially, the way to think about it is that only one in 10 of ventures will be founded by by a woman when we think about these high growth ventures. And so now you could also wonder, right? Because we looked at this historic data and so you could wonder whether, well, perhaps it's changing over time, perhaps it used to be very low, but now that uh, the society is progressing, it's it's developing, it's changing, maybe we actually see some changes in, in female representation over time as well. But but it turns out that the numbers are actually quite stable. And so between 95 and 2011 in the United States, at best, the female representation among those high growth ventures, but also ventures overall, at best, it increased by 2%. Mm. And so, so I would say that we know that the gender gap exists and we know that it's quite systematic, it's quite persistent. But it might actually depend on the types of startups, on the country, on the industry, and even the specific time period. But the imbalance between women and men is especially stark among those high-growth ventures and ventures that uh, are or do aspire to receive uh, VC funding or ultimately go IPO.
0: What do you think accounts for that stark difference uh, on the one hand between males and females at the high level so that 20 22 percent versus 78 80 percent and in particular those high growth potential startups What, what do you think in your research or based on your research accounts for that difference
1: so we want to think a lot about a lot of different factors. I would say that they fall under two broad categories. So when we think about constraints that women face at entry. So so just when they uh, are about to start a new venture uh, usually, we want to think about what I call pipeline constraints. So it's factors that that reflect some kind of systematic obstacles that women would face when attempting to found new ventures and they're due to their motivations, skills and so on. So that's one. Then the second one is is the actual bias uh, that we sometimes observe in evaluations. And so, so let me just give you a brief overview in terms of what we actually know and how uh, we should be thinking about it. So so first, in terms of those pipeline constraints, so the big deal, the big factor here is uh, structural constraints, right? So, so relative to men, women face constraints in their workplace, but also at home, because we know that founding a new venture requires exposure to novel opportunities. You need to have resources to exploit those opportunities as well. But then unfortunately for women, uh, there are some systematic differences in the workplace that actually put them at a considerable disadvantage relative to men. So for example, they often have reduced chances to advance to higher level positions, to become managers, or to even work in high profitability industries. And so this kind of segregation across occupations and across jobs, it turns out, plays a pretty big role in limiting women's access to knowledge and information and resources. And so they don't have as many chances, as many opportunities to explore those novel technologies, hmm. to come up with new market ideas. So that's certainly one. Now, there's another aspect of it, which which is uh, more due to this disproportionate disproportionate work-life demands that that women face because they often do have childbearing and household chores. So they often do have to accommodate family demands more than do men. And so because of that, women actually do steer away from those high-growth ventures that we flagged at the beginning are really the ones where we see this uh, really acute gender gap in entrepreneurship And so what happens there is that we often see women pursuing ventures that allow them uh, to have better schedule, to have more flexibility, to be more able to attend to those family demands. And so, so they turn to entrepreneurship more out of necessity. It's often plan B. It sometimes can be self-employment, um, like lifestyle businesses or businesses that are operating at home. And so so, so we do see women would self-sort into more consumer-oriented uh, businesses, personal services, le- retail or trade. So, so the sort of businesses that really allowed it to to better reconcile this work life conflict that that they often face and so 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 that that is a consistent pattern we see in the data i will also say that uh because of these various structural constraints i think we do see that women often lack those kind of technical Technical knowledge or or skills or or, or sort of uh, the resources that would allow them to pursue those high growth ventures, in part because again early in the pipeline there we know that there are negative stereotypes that often would undermine female representation in uh, those technical fields. So if we think about women's representation in STEM, right, in STEM areas, so so they're already we can see that there is that shortage of women, the unequal representation. So women are less engaged in patenting or licensing activities. They're less likely to hold IP rights or trademarks. And so so they just lack those uh, skills and resources that would allow them to then successfully sort into, into high growth ventures. And so, so it's not actually only the, the human capital or, yeah. or skills per se, because with that also comes the imbalance around the uh the network and social capital, which as we know is also really <laughs> important when one tries to found a new venture. And so unfortunately, there we also have some systematic evidence that that women uh do have more homogeneous networks, they have smaller networks, they're often Constraint when it comes to being connected to valuable mentors, to people who can endorse them. And so all of those factors then make it really difficult. They make it really difficult to access diverse information, to to have, again, those opportunities um, that that are of the highest value in the market, and then to develop them into a business idea. Because those networks are just so homogeneous, they're so much smaller, the endorsement that often really helps entrepreneurs, especially early on when we know quality is just really difficult to evaluate so in those stages too women actually are at least at a significant disadvantage and so it's much more difficult for them to to mobilize the resources uh, and to pursue those valuable opportunities and then i will just say since i mentioned at the beginning that when it comes to bias right because we all wonder okay are women actually being also discriminated is there discrimination and so, so just in terms of pure numbers, Crunchbase, I pulled that number. And in 2020, just 2.3% of global venture capital went to female entrepreneurs, it turns out. And so, so the question, of course, is, is it bias? Is it something else? And we have decades of research that has looked into this question. And I think, it's fair to say that by now, we do have at least some evidence, some evidence that women might actually face systematic bias, especially on the investor side. So there's a very interesting study by Laura Hong and Dana Kenzie, where they actually show that even when women pitch their ideas uh, to investors, they're being asked very different types of questions. They're being asked about safety, responsibility, security, and vigilance relative to men who, by contrast, are being asked about the hope, achievements, advancement, and ideals. And so so there already we see that investors see female founders as having very different potential. They're concerned about very different things. And so that then, those perceptions, they do have significant consequences where it comes to actually then securing capital and growing a new venture. And then finally, I'll just add that you could imagine just just having or assessing those biases in experimental conditions. And there too, there is notable research that suggests that there are observable differences. And so the differences exist. The question is how much of the actual gap do they drive and what can we do about them?
0: It sounds very much as though there's almost this vicious cycle operating that different stages along, to, to use your word, the pipeline, there are lots of challenges that female founders and entrepreneurs face that, that male founders and entrepreneurs don't, which ultimately lead to these, the, these lower numbers. In a recent paper with uh, Vera Rocker of Copenhagen Business School and Peter Junkin of the University of Oregon, which was published in the journal Organisation Science, you you explored one particular challenge faced by female founders and that is discretionary effort by employees obviously here we're talking about organizational companies i should say that have been founded they've been set up but are facing the challenges in terms of, of of progressing can you perhaps tell us a little bit about that research
1: Absolutely. So let's just give you a little bit of a background on how we even came to think about this unusual source of uh, disadvantage that women might face in in entrepreneurship. So when we think about uh, all those constraints that that I just highlighted, I think everyone noticed here that uh, a lot of them pertain to the pre-entry stress stage. So they're all about how you access capital, um, how you actually get those skills and resources and opportunities to found a new venture. But, but, but it's interesting because we know much less about uh, what happens next. Clearly, some women do succeed in founding new ventures. Some of them actually do overcome those initial obstacles. They're able to make a compelling case to investors. They get their funding. And so they take off. Now, what happens next is the question. And so we're quite surprised by the little attention to this post-entry stage. And and what happens, especially that we would assume that those women who eventually are able to overcome those initial obstacles should be really high quality, if it's true that the bar at at the entry stage is systematically higher for women than for men, And so so what happens when women actually get their hands on finance and all the other resources? We need to then look at the second stage. And so so we looked first into just general patterns, general statistics, do women actually outperform or are they at least equal, at least equal relative to their uh, male counterparts once they're able to clear those initial obstacles? And so one thing we noticed, this is, again, based on Crunchbase reports. And so Crunchbase uh, says that for 120 new ventures joining its unicorn board the same year, only 10 were female-founded. So so again, so this is already ventures that were operating, but but there's just very few of those women-founded ventures. And then when we look at some other data, we also found some hunch that Women actually do not perform on parity with men. And so there seemed to be a significant performance gap, even post-entry. And so we're quite intrigued by this pattern. And we really wanted to understand why, since we knew that some of the common obstacles wouldn't explain that that difference. So it wasn't due to funding. It wasn't due to other things, because these were all cleared out. And so then we thought, okay, well, what, what, what else matters, right? What are the really important things once you actually start running this new venture? And, and so we thought about the scenario. So, so starting up is really challenging. And it's it's challenging because as you move forward, you also have to secure labor, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of the new venture success hinges on getting people to actually do work for you, and and it's not only that, it's also the fact that they have to do work for you, often with very little pay, because we know that uh, yes, startups are resource constraints and the pay is, is typically lower than what individuals would get in paid employment. And then it all then depends on the promise of return that tends to motivate um workers to to put their effort. And so So this idea of discretionary effort, I'm working now so that I get a higher payoff in the future, that's really the key for getting people on board, for having them dedicate their effort in a new venture. And so so there we then formulated this hypothesis. We're quite curious whether perhaps it is the case that that employees are just less likely, they're less willing to, to go this extra mile for female founders relative to male founders. And so so they, they just might not go this extra distance when the boss is a woman. Now, this was the uh, the initial uh, intuition we had. Of course, the question is, how, how do you test that, right? And no. how do you test, how do you measure willingness to put in this extra effort against gender bias in the real world setting. Um, so that proved quite challenging and we spent quite a bit of time really thinking about how do we measure this? How do we test this? And so as the first step, we ran a series of online experiments where we recruited real workers um, to do a very simple task. So this was a fictitious company that we created, but workers weren't told it was fictitious. So they actually believe they're doing real work for real founders. And so, then, without being explicit, we use those gendered names of fictitious bosses. So, in one case, workers were uh, completing the task for women founders, and in the other case, it was men founders. But it was quite subtle. They were randomly assigned to either gender of the startup, and then they were asked to collect data on a number of different images. And so, we asked them to code pictures, and then at the end, we say we said, well do you actually want to code a few extra pictures? But that that task was without pay. So we asked them to complete additional labor without really paying them for it. Mm -hmm. And so here's what we found. So it turns out that people in our experiment were actually significantly less likely to complete this extra work for for women. And in particular, it was 7% difference. So so online workers were 7% less likely to put in this overtime. Uh, They're 7% less likely to contribute this really important discretionary effort that can really make or break the fledgling business what's also interesting and and I think it was somewhat unexpected for us was that this this difference in motivation was actually equal uh, across gender of the workers so whether it was a woman or a man they were equally less likely to contribute to this additional work uh, to female founders so it wasn't the gender or for that for that matter, other demographics of the workers that were driving those differences. We didn't notice anything in particular. So it was kind of across the board effect. Now, of course, this was a particular setting. It was a particular set of workers. And we knew that people who go online and complete tasks might be somewhat different. They might be motivated by different things as well. And so the next question we had was: well, is it real, right? Does it actually generalize beyond this particular online setting? And so, as a next step, uh, we then really wanted to see if we were able to find patterns that were consistent with what we saw in an online setting in the in sort of the archival data for, for real firms, uh firms that were not fictitious. And so we spent quite a lot of time, um, again, uh, it's part of the job of a researcher, (laughs) that's fine, but we spent quite a lot of time trying to find data where we would be able to measure discretionary effort in the same way. And so it turns out that the country that allowed us to, to look at this was Portugal, because in Portugal, there is publicly available data that tracks employee hours. Uh, so there's a statutory requirement for new companies to log employee hours, including overtime. And so this was really fortuitous for us because we were able to use this employer-employee linked data set that was managed by the Portuguese Ministry of Employment. And so with that, we we're essentially able to track the entire population. So all the startups that were founded in Portugal between 2002 and 2012. So over the period of 10 years, we're able to look at over 200,000 newly founded firms. So it was a pretty large sample that we're able to to identify. And there again, we were able to measure quite precisely the self-reported discretionary effort so how much the employees would report they worked overtime, and then we're able to match that against the gender of the founders of the new firm, for which we also had the data. And so without further ado, I'll just repeat <laughs> that we did find the same pattern. So what we found is that for observationally similar ventures founded by men and founded by women, people did work less. So at the very least, they reported working less when they were hired by a female founder. And this was true in our case for both regular and extra time. Uh, So this overtime that that we're in particular interested in. And so so that really gave us us this confidence that, well, it wasn't just the online uh, setting. It, it, It did turn out that, uh, when we look at very systematic data on many ventures over time, uh, we have the entire population of ventures, we actually see really, really similar patterns.
0: Just thinking back to some of the earlier discussion, does that apply, or sorry, do your findings apply, particularly in terms of Portugal and the Portuguese data, to all sorts of different industries, or was it just a, a focus on a particular area where people were working less with female founders?
1: This is a great question, but uh, we did not find any specific industry differences. So so I think there was some hunch that it might be, the effect might be smaller in industries that have a higher representation of women on the workforce side. So maybe there's this idea that some industries are gender typed. And so the effect there would be much uh, weaker because again, the expectations might be different. But we didn't find those differences. And yes, to your question, we did include the entire uh, universe, which means mm. we had every single industry. and then we compared, we estimated our effects within a given industry. So uh, so it wasn't the case that that it was a particular industry that that accounted for this effect.
0: Okay, interesting. So it wasn't, you know, the, the stereotypical male context versus the stereotypical female context. It was just across the board in, in, entirely. I, I guess to, to go back to the earlier discussion, we can easily see what the impact of that might be, that th- there might be slower growth, there might be um, less development, less opportunities uh, uh, exploited. But w- what do you feel, and, and do you and your colleagues feel, could actually be done to address this? Is it about... Changing policies? Is it about changing mindsets? Is it addressing how leaders of startups motivate their teams? What, what do you think it might be?
1: Ah, oh, so the first the million dollar question. Exactly. That is a million dollar question. And I think before we even go there, it's probably useful to first think well, how important is this effect? Should we even worry? Should it even mm. be important for us before we start changing policies and so on? And so, so just to put numbers, uh, specific numbers on onto what we found. So the gender gap that we observed in this employee labor was about 7%. So so the way to think about it is that uh, there was a 7% drop in labor supply for women entrepreneurs relative to men entrepreneurs. Now, you might think that, well, it doesn't really sound like very much. 7%. 7% Mm -hmm. is not that much. Maybe we should do nothing. Maybe we shouldn't be changing policies or... We should just keep our status quo. And so, so to think a little bit more about the importance of this, I think it's useful to think about the 7% deficit in a particular context, right? So so if I'm a female founder and now I founded my venture, but I need to pay 7% more for discretionary effort than do my male peers, right? That That seems like, it might have some consequences, especially oh. it might have some consequences if you are in a situation where costs um, starts rising, maybe your resource squeezed, maybe pandemics just unfolded. <laughs> and then that 7% might actually make a big difference for, for you. And so, so, so the way to think about it, I think, is that 7% can actually be quite a big deal for women. It's quite a big deficit. And so then if we agree that 7% is something that we should actually be worried about, then then it goes to your question, which is, well, what what should we be doing about this? Um, Is there anything that that can be done to actually decrease it, to address this problem? So I think one question that that we have to ask there is, well, what drives those 7%? Why is it that uh, in our experiment and observational data, employees were actually less likely to provide this supplemental labor for for women and so so we were interested in that question as well and in a series of other online experiments we recruited workers we tried to also ask them exposed so after the experiment was concluded we 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 tried to ask them what made them say whatever they said in the experiment And so it was interesting because what the data revealed was that workers would often say that they perceived the task for a female founder as being more difficult, even though we know that the task was exactly the same. So everything else was comparable, but workers would still report that they found the task more difficult for a female founded startup. They also uh, would indicate that they found the request to complete uh, the task without pay. So to put this overtime for a woman, they found it more unfair. So so relative to to male founded startups, they were more able, more willing to kind of admit that it didn't match their expectations. They were coming in thinking that uh, they would be asked to complete um, the uh, specified labor. And so so that really raised questions about perhaps the beliefs or expectations that workers might have when they dedicate their efforts for for female founders, but also for women bosses in general. And so it could be the case, Mm. the evidence here, let me say, is not conclusive, but it could be the case that... Uh, Because of these different expectations, different cultural beliefs that people hold when these expectations are violated and women all of a sudden ask for more work than what uh, would be expected, then people are more likely to deny requests for for such uh, for such tasks. And so Mm -hmm. so I think this is important to think about those different micro level mechanisms that might contribute to this to this gap. Because then it would really inform how our efforts to to address the gap. And so so I think in thinking about what to do, how do we change that? How do we decrease this? How do we make it easier for for women once they actually start, um, they take off the ground and they manage their ventures? So, So I think it's a difficult question. It's really tough to address policy efforts we know are very active when it comes to addressing gender bias in the founding stage. And so there's a lot of accelerators, incubators, diversity focused initiatives these days that are trying to close the gender gap by providing resources, providing mentorship. And so there's a lot that we've already been doing. but. But it all pertains to to this uh, founding stage, and so, so in some ways, I think that's the stage that's much easier to to address. Because once we actually then move to this post-founding stage, at least this study reveals that there might be some systematic obstacles or hurdles that are much more nuanced, right? They're they're biases they're due to some cultural beliefs that people hold and maybe they're just so deeply embedded that it's going to take a lot of effort and skill to really think about how to address them in an effective way and so even if we are able to eliminate those initial biases and skills money and know how this post-founding gap might be much more much harder to detect and much harder to to address. And so the question is what do we do? And I think I think there's definitely some uh advantage in at least knowing that it exists and documenting it in a systematic way and talking about it and having podcasts and uh and other outlets to actually uh, diffuse that message because in some ways I think intensifying efforts on part of educators and other actors that influence entrepreneurial activities and promoting the awareness that there there is that possibly unconscious discriminatory behavior that might actually be the best way to to start. Right. Um, that's the first place to start in defeating this uh, this bias. And then I think more generally, this also points to the importance of really thinking about what do we do to defeat bias in the workplace in the in the first place. Um, and so so I would think that while policy efforts might be might be sort of more difficult to think about at this stage, but but the first thing, the first order effect here is to really think about, well, how do we how do we first become aware of this and how do we start talking about this as educate, educators in the workplace as well to really make it much easier for women?
0: It's interesting you, you made the point there that, um, you know, perhaps 7% isn't that much of a big deal and we should maybe just accept it. But as you were talking, I was thinking about it and, and 7% is essentially almost one less month a year of labor. And, and when you put it in those terms, I think it really is quite a stark difference. If companies, startups led by women, basically stop working at the end of November every year that would be a a, a pretty a pretty drastic uh, a drastic change but essentially that's that's kind of what you found if i understand it correctly i
1: think that's right and that's also in addition to all the other obstacles that we've mentioned so it's a cumulative effect as well
0: yeah if people wanted to find out more about your research is there anywhere in particular they could go Olenka?
1: Mm, absolutely so if you'd like to know more then i would encourage everyone to visit my website which is www uh, olenkak.com uh so o l e n k a k.com so this is where i post updated research and uh news articles and so on so i would be delighted to have a broader audience for that
0: that that sounds great and i'll make sure to put a link to that as well as to the uh, to, to the article we've been discussing in the uh, show notes professor olenka katspetric of london business school thank you very much for your time it's been great speaking to you
1: thank you very much pleasure